Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 19. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 903. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are continuing on with the first letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote, and in particular, the 14th chapter, where Paul is addressing the church on the speaking of tongues or the speaking of languages. Last week was the first part of the four-part series on this chapter, and one of our elders, I didn't say I was going to mention this to him, but one of our elders referring to the sermon, uh, would tell me that I, quote, I poo-pooed all over tongues, unquote. Uh, Besides it being a disturbing image, my wife would refer to that comment on our way home to tell me how it made her laugh. Now I know that most of you are fine and that you understand that what we really want to do here is adhere to whatever the Word of God says, there are some difficult parts in the scriptures, but this, this part, in my humble opinion, this is not one of them. It's clear what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. However, I know for a fact that many of us, if not all of us, struggled with this notion of ecstatic speech being a gift of the Spirit. My job isn't to poo-poo over anything, Rather, it is to simply state what the Word says. 
And there are people that I love and I genuinely respect as biblical scholars and pastors who don't agree with this position. They believe that the gift of tongues and specifically the ecstatic speech is still for today. And they think that the church only had lost it for 2,000 years because the church didn't desire it enough. Again, these are respected and brilliant scholars who say this, but I want you to listen to that argument. For almost 2,000 years, the church lost a pivotal gift from God because we didn't seek it. This then would be an indictment on the church. Forget the personal edification. This should be taught then. Every syllable, every sway of your torso, it should be taught, shouldn't it? And in some churches, they do exactly that. They have these so-called prayer rooms where you go in and they teach you to follow or mimic the sounds and the syllables that they make. But this is where their theology is off. Nowhere, nowhere in the scriptures are the sign gifts taught. They are given by God for a specific time, era, and purpose. Sign gifts verify revelation. But here in these chapters, Paul is focusing on how to edify the church. And in the Bible, this particular sign gift of tongues was always, always understood as a language. It was never ecstatic speech or gibberish. This, what, this is what we could clearly see in Acts 2 during Pentecost. There is another argument that's made by some in the charismatic movement, that 1 Corinthians 14 is actually showing a new kind of tongue and that it's different from Acts 2. And contextually, I will say this is a stretch. There is absolutely nothing that the Corinthians were doing right all the way up until chapter 14. And all of a sudden and quite conveniently, Paul is going to say, wow, nice gift, guys. Somehow Paul is going to reference a new ecstatic private devotional speech that you can use in prayer to only edify yourself. You see, the only problem with that is that, um, well, there are two problems, that there's no place, absolutely no place in the Bible that, number one, makes a distinction between the gift of languages and another special mysterious ecstatic speech. And number two, there's no new word for this distinction. It's still language or tongue, glossa in the Greek. So contextually speaking, what is obvious is that there was a real gift of tongue or languages. There was a real gift, just like the ones in Acts 2, and the Corinthians were then perverting this gift. Paul uses chapter 14 to teach the people in Corinth how to discern then between the real and the perversion. Again, there are people that I highly respect whom I would call brothers in Christ, scholars, more brilliant than I, more versed in the scriptures than me, that believe tongues is a gift for today. And someone sent me an article last week that I had read on this topic many years ago. It was written in 1990. But it was, uh, it's an article written by a famous pastor. And you can see the genuine struggle that he has between these two theological points. And to his credit, in 1990, I was nowhere theologically where I am now or even to the point where he was in 1990. 
And so by the time you finish the article, I'm going to quote this portion of the article to you. And this is what he says. Virtually all the great pastors and teachers of history that I admire and that have fed me over the years belong to the first group who believed that signs and wonders were only for the apostolic age. And then he goes on to name them. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Benjamin Warfield, and then he goes, even his own father. And then he ends it by saying, but I am not fully persuaded by their case. So he would say this, but then I would add to that list, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and many more pre-Reformation fathers to that list. So in his words, Virtually no church father or reformer believes that tongues is a gift for today. And he would be right and correct in this assessment. Virtually no church father believes that tongues is a gift for today. Chapter 14 that we've read is about the people in Corinth doing a very selfish thing with a true gift. And this is what Alex Rattray Hay in the mid-1900s addresses when he wrote on this subject as well. These believers in their heathen days had believed that when they spoke in a tongue not understood by men, not even by a worshiper, they were speaking secrets or mysteries with their God. They believed it was their spirit speaking. The benefit was received by the worshiper alone, no one else understood. The worshiper profited through the ecstasy of feeling aroused and the sense that he was really participating with the spirits in the inner circle. He had no thought for the building up of the other worshipers. Paul contrasts this selfish objective with the Christian objective. The purpose of the manifestations of God's spirit is that the whole congregation be edified, end quote. And because John Calvin was mentioned earlier, I'll just say this. John Calvin, he was considered, even by his peers, even the reformers of his age, to be, and B.B. Warfield would call him, would call Calvin this, quote, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. That's what even Benjamin Warfield would call John Calvin. Stephen Lawson also explains this because he explains history as the Roman Catholics believing in two streams. They believe in two streams because one stream was scriptures and one stream was tradition. They held these up. And they now we have in the Reformers' age, the 1500s, the Charismatics came out too, and they would say there's also two streams. One stream is the Word of God, and the other stream is this gift of prophecy, tongues, word of knowledge, etc., etc. And this is what Calvin would say. There is no, there is only one stream of revelation for his church throughout the ages. After the first century, that one stream is sola scriptura. It is the written word of God. And Calvin would assert 
that we ought to stain that the substantial word is the source of all revelations. Um, it is the highest value to ask nothing beyond the word of God. There is only one stream, and it is the word of God. What that means is you will not get any other revelation or mystery revealed. That's what revelation means, mystery revealed outside of the scriptures. You will not utter anything that is beyond what the scriptures already attest to. That's what we mean by sola scriptura. And the purpose then of these gifts, Paul is writing in chapter 14. What's the purpose then of gifts? The purpose is to edify the church. It's to build up the church. But the Corinthian church was not doing that at all. They were people of the flesh. They wanted the ecstatic. They wanted the sensual. They wanted the experience. And he calls those people sarkanos. And they were not people of the spirit like they thought. Pneumaticos. Even to the point of celebrating a man sleeping with his father's wife in chapter 5. That's how far they were away because they continued to chase after the sensual. And then they would step on and over each other to get to the top, to get to the highest place, even to the point of suing each other in secular courts. They were lusting after evil things, depriving each other in marriage. They had fellowship with demons. They were drunken, selfish, abusive toward the poor, and they desecrated the Lord's table. They were not expressing any gift of the Spirit properly or at all. This was a serious disorder in the Corinthian church, and Paul is addressing every single one of it. At no point was Paul going, everything you're doing is so evil and demonic, bankrupt even of the foundational basics of love, but this tongue thing, man, keep that one up. That was not the trend. That's not the flow of this letter. Now, to be clear, again, there is a true gift of tongues that the Apostle Paul had. It was used as a sign, and we'll go over that in next week's sermon on the purpose of tongues. But today, we'll continue on in going over the place of tongues. And the place of tongues is that it is secondary. And it's secondary because it follows the gift of prophecy. Prophecy can and it does edify the church, but tongues cannot and this is just a quick review of last week's message. But the whole point of a gift was to edify. In verse 26, he says, Let all things be done for building up edification. In the Greek word oikodome, it means oikos means the house or the home or family, and dome means to build up. So he goes, Let all things be done for oikodome. Let all things be done to build Build this family up. From chapter 11, Paul goes from addressing communal sins to church 
order. So he's going all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 10, addressing all these sins, communal sins, these misunderstandings. And now, right from chapter 11, he goes on to church order. And that means when the church is gathered, here are the instructions. Living in today's society, it's no wonder that when Paul addresses the church, he addresses chapter 11 with gender roles. When a church and society start confusing these things, we witness the decreation or the destruction of creation. We give in to the lie of the devil. And then we ask also, did God really say? Did God really say that women have to do this? And men have to do this, hmm? Did God really say that women can't preach, hmm? And then the list goes on to the perversion all the way to the Lord's table, to even the abuse of gifts in the gathering. Paul goes on to teach then that love should be the undergirding reality of everything that the church does. And if that's the case, all this order, all this order that he's giving is to edify the church, not yourself, but to edify the church. And even if you did have the gift of languages, like it says in verse 5, you need an interpreter to be edifying. Now we're going to go on to verse 6, because it's a long passage, we're going to go straight into it. In verse 6 it says, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Now, now this word is, but now. And he changed, he's changing his tone. He's changing his tone from a reprimand to almost a sympathetic plea. Almost a sympathetic plea. But now, brothers. It's a gentle explanation from his teaching prior. If last week was a little rough or rugged, then he's going, but now, brothers. If I come to you speaking in tongues, because he has the true gift, how will it be of any benefit to you unless it's a teaching, a revelation, or prophecy? That means, how in the world would me coming to you speaking in a language that you don't understand profit you? Because I want to teach you. I would speak to you in a language then that you understand. Greek. There is no sense of me trying to speak in a language that you don't understand when the aim and his aim and the aim of everybody should be to build up. Perhaps if you saw something like this, you'd be awed and in wonder if someone spoke to you in some other tongue. But Paul's point is that it will not benefit you. You wouldn't be built up. Verse 7 if even the lifeless, lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Even instruments, things without life, they make sounds. If it didn't give distinct notes, what's the point? The flute or harp only makes sense when it produces notes in variation to accompany what you want to portray. I love, I love that we, at least once a month, get to hear music from instruments. 
and these music from instruments has been set aside, that means it has been consecrated for worship. It's a statement that we're making that these instruments, they can be played for anything, but 10 minutes before Sunday, once a month, we're going to play these instruments to music that matches the songs that we sing as praises to God, and it will help us prepare our hearts for worship. We're using the music that is played to remind us that these instruments, while they could be used for anything, we will specifically use them for a holy purpose to remind us that we want to separate ourselves from the world for the holy purpose of worshiping God. I love that. Sometimes it gets me emotional, and then I'm reminded I'm a Presbyterian. So, mm, you got to suck that right in. But the song that our staff sang before, because it has notes attached to the words, it communicates meaning. They were very stressed that I would... Uh, make them do this. So if you wonder, like, oh, what does PUH do with the staff all week? You have a taste of that. I force them to do things they don't like, like sing four-part harmony. But it communicates meaning. It wasn't a somber tune. So you know it's not supposed to be sung mournfully. It's not a march. So you know it's not a battle hymn. It had more of a barbershop quartet feel. Because the music that it's set to is American folk. America. But it's American folk. It's a hymn then. American folk is a hymn that's meant to be didactic, meaning teach, teaching, but in a joyful way. That's, Ameri- that's why it's put to that tune. It's a hymn that's meant to be didactic, but in a joyful way. It's music that's supposed to put a smile on your face. And hopefully if we sang it decently enough, that's exactly what it did. But if someone just came up and just started shouting random notes or played a cacophony of these random notes on an instrument, what would you say? You would say, please stop. Please, my ears. If you can't understand something, it won't benefit you. And on top of that, if you say nothing but gibberish, It would be as if someone just played noise on a piano. In verse 8, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? This is true of the armies back then as it is now. If you played Reveille, uh, some of you know what that is. You want to sing it? Anyway, it's... uh, it's when the bugle comes out in the morning, goes bam 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 bam, and then as soon as if you've been in the military and you hear that song, you know it's time to get up. It's like all right, I'm ready to go, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's like, man, do I have to get up? But I hear that if someone was in the military and you play this song, they'll just wake up immediately. <laughs> anyway, uh, but if you play Reveille, then you know it's time to get up, right? You know what exactly what time it is, and it's the same. With charge, it's you know that one? If you played that on the bugle, then you would know to say after that, charge, and then you see that in the movies. But if you played some random notes on the battlefield, how would anyone know what to do next? You're all gathered in the battlefield, and the bugle's ready to go, and just plays random notes. 
What would happen? There will be mass confusion leading to deaths and possibly a loss in battle. This is what Paul is saying. This, these, these are the examples Paul is giving. Because sounds on an instrument are played for a purpose. In verse 9, so with yourselves, so with yourselves. Now it comes back to you. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. In the same way, with you, if you say things that are gibberish, no one understands you. You're speaking into the air. You are doing, what you are doing has no point. That's the point. When you speak, it's so that someone understands you. You don't speak into the air. That isn't the purpose of speaking. So what's the picture that Paul is showing? It's almost comical. It's like the bugle player in an army playing random notes while the army is assembled. It's an instrument that just plays a cacophony of notes. What do you get when you do this? You don't get order. You get chaos. Paul, here in these verses, is using almost every teaching method available. He starts from gentleness, calling them brothers, to comedy with his illustrations, to irony. Why would you speak into the air? He's employing all these methods to show with great patience that we use intelligible words when we speak and pray. We do not speak gibberish. This is what you do when you really love someone. Why does Paul go out of his way to employ all these methods in teaching the Corinthians? Because he loves them. And likewise, my job isn't to poo-poo on anyone, but it is to teach rightly in love. Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Again, I would remind you that every language has meaning. You can't speak gibberish and not know its meaning. The word meaning is from the Greek word dunamis. It's a very popular Greek word that if you grew up in the church, you probably know. Dunamis is where we get dynamite, and it's the meaning of a word then that gives it power. If you confuse language and you don't even know what it's supposed to mean, you don't have any power in what you're saying. All these people wanted power, and he's saying the things that you're doing is actually the opposite. You don't have power when you don't speak with meaning. If you confuse language then, you don't even know what it's supposed to mean, then you'll be a foreigner to the listener. Now I want you to get this. This is all connected. The word translated from foreigner is the word barbaros. Barbaros. It's where we get the term barbarian. Barbaros is translated as foreigner. But if I speak in gibberish, and mind you, even if it was a real language, but the person didn't understand it is the point. If no one understands what you're saying, I'll be a barbarian to the people I'm trying to reach. Barbarous, again, is an onomatopoeia. It means someone who goes bar, 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 because they sound like an idiot. That's what the Greeks thought of people who didn't speak Greek. It just sounds like you're going bar, bar, bar to me. That's why they're called barbarians or barbaros. And that's what's translated as foreigner. You're going to be 
a barbarian to them. Paul is using their own sense of superiority to show them their fallacy in speaking that way. No one understanding you is actually not a respectable thing. No, it's not respectable. It's like how you Greeks view the barbarians. Everything that you say should have meaning. Remember, this is an indictment on those that thought speaking in ecstatic speech was the highest form of ecstasy. They thought they were communicating with God. This is a high gift of God is what they thought. No one can understand me because I am like God is what they were saying. But Paul is flipping that notion on them by effectively calling them barbarians. Verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And so since you are so zealous, that's the word, zealous for the spirits, strive with that zealousness and excellence then rather to build up the church. You put so much energy into the ecstatic because you want this spiritual power. You want this progress, right? Use that energy to build up, not yourselves, but use that energy to build up the church. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So if you really think you have the gift of tongues, pray that you find out what language it is. Otherwise, he says in verse 28, to keep silent. This is how the Corinthians were to discern between what was real and what was counterfeit. You keep telling me that it's a language, but no one understands you. You don't even understand you. You can't say that you're talking to God because you don't pray to edify God. Because if the people around you don't benefit, what are you really doing this for? Now he's still on the gibberish part because he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The word unfruitful is another word for useless. He's saying my mind is useless. When we worship God, when we love God, we do it with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our mind. The mind is an essential part of our devotion to God. Never, never will he want you to be placed in a trance and you wake up not knowing what happened in the span of that trance. This is a paganistic practice and it does not belong in the church. Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So what then? Pray with your spirit, but with your mind as well. Just like when you sing hymns, it's intelligible words that have meaning that engages the mind. This is why, this is also why we don't sing songs here in this church that repeat lines over and over again. Its purpose is to put you in this trance-like state and to bring you into this euphoric emotional state. This is a pagan practice. It has no place in God's church. 
And I love hymns because it has words that are meant to teach or edify or praise and glorify God. There are songs that people sing today with words repeated over and over again. It either has meaning that's so shallow that it doesn't edify at all, except the usual emotional ecstasy, I suppose. Or it can just be outright damning. I, that's the crazy part. There was a song popular, uh, like there was a popular song some years ago where people would just sing over and over again for fire to fall down. We pray. Fire to fall down? What fire, like the fire sent to Sodom and Gomorrah? That's crazy. Why would you want to be destroyed with that kind of judgment? Perhaps then they were singing about the Holy Spirit coming down like tongues of fire. But that was an explanatory point to show what it was like, not what it is. The Holy Spirit isn't fire. When the Holy Spirit came down to the believers at Pentecost, the writers needed to explain what it was like. It was like tongues of fire. As if I said, wow, I have such a headache, it's like I got hit by a Mack truck. I didn't really get hit by a Mack truck, I'd be dead. But it's a metaphor to explain the pain in my head I wouldn't ask then for a Mack truck to hit me. How crazy would it be if I go, Mack truck hit me, right? I wouldn't sing that. So asking for fire to fall down is either ignorant of the scriptures, so you shouldn't be singing it, or it's literally asking for fiery judgment to fall on you. And this is what happens then when you don't engage your mind. We are to engage our mind in everything that we sing, everything that we pray, in all of our worship and devotion and love to God. In verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So when we give thanks with your spirit, meaning gibberish, he's saying when you're still speaking in this, how can anyone, an outsider, an unbeliever, amen that? This means that even your prayers can and it does edify even the person that does not believe yet. The early church would meet in synagogues where Jews might even show up. And then by understanding your prayers, you could even potentially get to get them to say amen. That means you could potentially edify them. But when you pray in an unknown tongue, you may very well be giving thanks, but it does no good because no one can understand it. It is good to pray prayers that glorify God then and edify your neighbor. This is why we have public prayers that we can. Amen. On Saturdays, I've been moving away also from just all, us all praying together to having one person pray at one time so we listening can also amen those prayers. We do this because the Bible is exhorting us to do it. When everyone shouts prayers at the same time, how can we amen each other? So Paul's focusing on the gathering or assembly of the church. Paul's focus on this gathering or the church is clear. What's the focus? It's to edify one another. Verse 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul thanks God for being able to speak more languages than the Corinthians. 
So is he bragging? Why would he brag? He's not bragging. He's saying then at least two things here. Number one, the gift of languages or the gift of tongues is a true gift and he has it. He doesn't have the gibberish. He actually has it. And number two, it's a good gift. The true gift is a good gift that he was able to give thanks to God for. But then he adds something. He goes, more than all of you. So he just doesn't go, I thank God that I can speak in tongues. But he goes, more than all of you. What does he mean by the word more? The word for more in the Greek is malon. Malon. It's a word that denotes a contrast in the Greek structure. I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Rather, that word is malon. You could work in a more there, right? Right? So do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. More fear him who can destroy both body and body, uh, both soul and body in hell. You could kind of work that in there. But it's translated as rather because the word malon is to denote a contrast. Even when malon is translated as more, just like in John chapter 12, verse 43, it says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. More is the word for malon. It's still pointing to a contrast. The word for more here isn't obviously, is obviously, is not, Paul is not saying like, I speak more than you. Ha ha. That's not what he's saying. That wouldn't make any sense. He is saying he has the true gift rather than all of you. Even so. Even so. And then he continues. Even though I do, nevertheless, in church, when the saints have gathered, when we are gathered in this place, he would rather speak five words that are intelligible and that can instruct and that word for instruct is catechiso, where we get the word for catechism. That's why we do catechisms here. So he would rather do five words that catechesos, that instructs us, than 10,000 words in a tongue. The word for 10,000 is murias. It means a myriad or an infinite number of words. It's not the literal word for the number 10,000. He would rather speak five words that you understand than an infinite amount of words in an unknown language or gibberish. It's five versus infinity. That's the real ratio. Why five? I think it's Paul being a little bit facetious here because uh, in the Greek, there are five Greek words before the number five in the sentence. So he speaks five words and he goes, five, I'd rather just speak these five words. I'd rather give you this pithy statement on your foolishness because it at least teaches you than a million words, than an infinite amount of words that mean nothing. Why does he say all this? Why? Why does he say all of this? Because he says it in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Why does he say this? Because it's time to grow up. It's time for the church to be mature. 
we make a grave error if we think that we come to Jesus only for our justification, but think that it has nothing to do with our sanctification. In Christ, we receive that the, what the world could never do for us, what we could never do in the world. In Christ, our sins are pardoned. In Jesus, the reign of sin is defeated. But it's that same grace of God that justified us that also sanctifies us. John Owens wrote, While by faith we contemplate the glory of Christ as revealed in the gospel, all grace will thrive and flourish in us towards a perfect conformity unto him. What is the church growing up to? What do we mature toward? We are going from infant to be more like Jesus. This is Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians as it is to us as well. We cannot go back to what the Corinthians were doing. That's not what we ought to do because it is time to grow up. It's time to move in sanctification. And this is what the Word of God exhorts His church to do. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the Word that You give us. It challenges us uh, to degrees where we don't even know perhaps how to handle it. But Lord, in full faith and trust, we move toward You. We want to grow to be like You. Help us to obey Your words that Your joy may be ours that this church may be pleasing to you, that the worship that we lift up to you may be a pleasing fragrance. Oh God, I pray that you would be with this church, that we wouldn't disappoint you, that we wouldn't fall away from you, but rather we would offer sacrifices, we would offer our lives that glorify our Savior, our Maker, our Lord. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our prayers to God. And perhaps this is something where you recognize that you want to grow in, but perhaps also this may be something that is difficult. Whatever the case is, lift it up to the Lord because it is the Holy Spirit that guides us through His Word that we can be more sanctified, that we can grow up to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus. So let's lift up our hearts to the Lord in prayer.